Well, good morning, everyone. You got me? You guys got me? Come on, power, Captain. Is it working? I'll keep talking. There we go. Praise God. Well, my name is Pastor Jack Hughes. As uh, I was introduced earlier, it's been a super great time just being around you folks, getting to know some of you, especially the men, a few of the women. It's been great just to be able to serve with you. It's good to know that there are like-minded churches in different places. Churches like yours are shrinking. The numbers are harder and harder to find. So it's really great when you can get together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who love God and love God's word and want to give God glory. And it's just great. We've, we've been super blessed being here among you and are just leaving with a glow. Well, Jay, uh, one of the things I do, because I'm kind of geeky, is I diagram text for my quiet time. I know it's probably not what most people do, but... It's my deal. So I use Logos Bible software, and I do these little diagrams. And since uh, Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've got a little team of guys I'm kind of training. And so I just diagram the text, and then I post them online. And Jay said, hey, could you preach on that? So I said, okay. Uh, on church discipline? Yeah, okay. So that's what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> if you have any problems, take all complaints to Jay. If you don't like the content, take it up with God. All right, so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 5. So turn there in your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at maintaining holiness in the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, 13 through 19, uh, we have kind of the concluding section of something that's going on. I'll explain that in a little bit. But most of the time when you're talking about church discipline, if I were to say to you, where does the Bible teach on church discipline? Most people say Matthew 18. Most people know that, verses 15 through 20. They know that's the church discipline text. When actually there's many, many texts on church discipline, that's just the first one. And in Matthew 18, it focuses mostly on restoring somebody who is caught in a sin to fellowship again with the church, to walk with the Lord again. So that's one of the purposes of church discipline, to restore someone who is in sin to obedience so that they break with their sin, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, among other texts. Other texts teach us that church discipline is for creating fear in people so that it will be a deterrent against sin. For instance, 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, speaking of elders in sin, says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. Other texts explain that church discipline is to be done to help the church maintain its witness in the world. You know, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 16, verses 17 to 19, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, 
but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So here we see that their faithfulness and turning away from those who are evil reached everybody. Everybody heard, yeah, you can't you know, be living in sin and go to that church. They deal with you. In general sense, church discipline is one of the ways we show love to the Lord. We know texts like John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And since Jesus commands us to do church discipline, that's how we show love to him. And fifth and finally, church discipline is to be practiced to maintain holiness in the church, which is the primary emphasis of our text this morning. We worship and serve a holy God. And you see this throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see texts like, you know, Leviticus 10, when Nadab and Abihu are incinerated for offering strange fire and treating God as unholy before the people. And God even tells Moses and Aaron, and imagine this, if God killed your sons, if you mourn the death of your sons, I will kill you because they treated me as unholy before the people. We could also talk about Uzzah in 1 Chronicles 13, who, you know, seemed like he wasn't being super rebellious or anything, that the Ark of the Covenant was being transported on a cart, which shouldn't have happened in the first place. It was starting to fall, and he reached out to stabilize it, and God struck him dead because he treated God as unholy. Or we could talk about Lot's wife. I mean, all she did is just look back with longing towards the wicked city that God had prepared for destruction, Genesis 19, and thus was turned into a pillar of salt. We could look in the New Testament. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, are struck dead for lying. Thankfully, God isn't doing that in every case. Otherwise, no one would be here. We see Herod, who was accepting worship as God. He, an angel was sent and struck him so he was eaten by worms and died as a result. So why are these examples found in the Bible? What do they teach us about God? What are we supposed to learn from these kind of severe cases? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us uh, later on in 1 Corinthians 10... He references the exodus, the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel, and he says this in verses 5 and 6. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Paul then mentions a bunch of other sins Israel committed in the wilderness in verses 7 through 10 and says again in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God is holy and he wants us to treat him as holy and to pursue holiness in the fear of him as Hebrews 12 verse 14 tells us. When Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, he says in verse 6, we should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, in heaven, it is what? Holy, holy. 
So our text for this morning instructs us how to help maintain holiness in the church. And so let me just give you a little background and context before we jump into our text. The Apostle Paul plants this church at Corinth. He, he goes into this super pagan place and he preaches the gospel and a bunch of pagan Gentiles and a few Jews come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Most have been steeped in idolatry and immorality all of their lives. In Corinth, uh, it's kind of a very intellectual center. There's the, the Greek philosophers and, and debate and oratory and argumentation are kind of like we would treat sports teams today. You know, you got your favorite team and you root for them, the Huskers or whatever, and you are so excited and when the game comes, you cheer them on. Well, they did that with debating and oratory. And some uh, brought this mindset of who is the best speaker into church. And some said, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Jesus, as if they were competing teams. And Paul is so disturbed about this, he spends four chapters trying to undo this whole problem of personality cults in the church. And when we get to 1 Corinthians 5, all the way through chapter 7, he starts addressing immorality. And he addresses it from different angles. We'll talk about our chapter in just a minute, but he goes on to talk about the reason why, gives 12 reasons why we shouldn't commit immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. Then he talks about how marriage is a safeguard against immorality in chapter 7. So the theme of 5 through 7 is immorality different from different angles. So look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, but we're only going to drill down on verses 9 through 13. Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of the Lord Jesus. When, with, when, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have just de decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of, his, the, day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But I actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? 
But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we come before you now needing help, needing your grace. We pray that your spirit would work mightily through your word, that he would illumine the minds of all who hear. Father, your truth would go forth in power, that it would perform its work in those who believe, and that it would draw those who do not believe to repentance and faith in Christ, that they might escape the wrath to come. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so from 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, I want to give you five admonitions to help you maintain holiness in the church so that God is glorified, so that believers are blessed, and so your local church can be a holy witness to those outside the church. Our first point is don't associate with immoral so-called brothers. So look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. The word associate means to be mixed up with, to have close, intimate relationships with. The word immoral is pornea, the word we get pornography from. It's a general term used for all kinds of sexual sin, which is why the Legacy Standard Bible, ESV, New King James, Holman Christian Standard, and Net Bibles translate it sexual immorality. Look at verse 11, where we see that Paul is clarifying what sexual immoral people he is talking about. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. Notice, though he starts off, verse 9, addressing sexually immoral person, but goes on to clarify in verse 11, he's talking about those who claim to be Christians, the so-called brother in Christ, who is living in unrepentant sexual immorality. In other words, don't associate with a person who professes to be a Christian if that person is living in unrepentant sexual sin. He even clarifies what he means by do not associate with them at the end of verse 11. Not even to eat with such a one. Don't even share a meal with them. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Don't share a meal with any so-called brother or sister in Christ who is living in immorality. Don't associate with them. But also notice in the latter half of verse 11, the Apostle Paul lists other common sins in Corinth, covetousness, idolatry, reviling, getting drunk, swindling. This is not a comprehensive list. It's just representative. It's just, it's just a list of sins. It doesn't matter what sin someone is engaged in. If they claim to be a Christian, they need to stop. If you're a so-called brother, you need to pursue holiness, not sin. You need to live in righteousness, not wickedness. And when we come upon somebody who is living in sin and won't repent and won't turn from it, here's the prescription. Do not associate with them. Do not even eat with them. To be clear, he's not saying don't associate with any so-called brother or sister who sins, for then we would all be alone because we're all sinners. He speaks of the professing Christian who is choosing to live in sin. To not repent, to not pursue righteousness, to not confess their sins to God. 
A person who justifies and tries to rationalize their sin. Like the man in verses 1 and 2 who was having a moral relationship with his stepmother. Also, at, in the near context of verses 6 to 8, the Apostle Paul compares the toleration of sin in the church to adding a little leaven to the lump of dough, which, of course, spreads quickly, what? Throughout the whole lump. We know that. The Corinthians were thinking, well, let's be loving. And even though this guy is sleeping with his stepmother, let's just be loving and welcome him, like what we hear today all the time. But it is never loving to let somebody continue in sin. It's not loving to the Lord, it's not loving to other people, and it's not loving to the person who is in sin. It is to show hatred to, your, to that person, and it's really the love of self. It's to say, I don't want to be, un- I don't want to be uncomfortable, I don't want to have to confront this guy, I don't want to have to like, obey Matthew 18 and go to them in private and say, hey, listen, you're in sin, and I love myself so much, I'm going to do what's easiest and best for me that's not loving that person and it's not loving the Lord and it's not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Any sin tolerated in the church leads to sin proliferated in the church. It gives people a license to sin. To be clear, again, he's not saying stay away from any sinner since we're all sinners but he's talking about the person who is committing high-handed rebellion against God and refusing to repent. Let's just say an elder doesn't obey one command and some person sees that elder not obeying that one command and they can say, well, I'm not gonna obey my command and if he talks to me about the command I'm not obeying, I'm gonna bring up the command he's not obeying. And then others see that person not being dealt with in the church who is obviously living in sin and they think, well, if they can get away with that, then I can get away with this. And soon the church, instead of being holy, becomes infested with sin and Satan throws a celebration in heaven or in hell with the demons. I mean, that's how it is. Thomas Watson rightly said, by toleration, we adopt other men's sins and make them our own. Biblical prescription from God is clear. The word of God says, do not associate with any so-called brother or sister in Christ if they are living in ongoing sin of any kind, not to even eat with such a one. Thomas Watson says, quote, if you would be pure, walk with them that are pure. As the communion of saints is our creed, so it should be our company. Proverbs 13, 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, and in the same way, he who walks with the pure shall be pure. The saints are like a bed of spices. By intermixing ourselves with them, we shall partake of their perfume. Association begets assimilation, end quote. If I spend all day working at a coffee shop, I come home smelling like coffee, which to me is a good smell. If I spend all day in the barn shoveling manure, I come home smelling like manure. Watson illustrates, if you visited a friend who had a plague, is it more likely that by visiting him that he would catch your health or that you would catch his plague? Thus, the apostle says, do not associate with any so-called brother who is living in any unrepentant sin. Don't even eat or share a meal with such a one because they will infect you with the plague of their hypocrisy. 
Our next point is do associate with unbelieving sinners. Look at verse 10. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Note to self, God doesn't want me to flee from all sinners and live in a monastery in the desert. He doesn't want me to get together with a bunch of Christians who have bought a big piece of property to have a Christian community. He doesn't want me to hide from sinners in the world because they are the mission field. Sinners are the mission field and we have to have contact with them. We need to be in the world, as Jesus said, but not of the world. Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners not to participate in their sin or not because he put his stamp of approval upon their sin, but to preach the gospel to them that they might escape the consequence of their sin. We can't escape being around sinners. Even if we go out in the desert by ourselves. we're still around a sinner. Paul says we would have to go out of the world because they're everywhere. But why, you might wonder, is it okay to associate with the immoral, covetous, swindlers, drunkards, and idolaters of the world, but not professing believers? I'm so glad you asked. Many reasons, but one reason is because we understand that unbelievers are the mission field, that they are held captive by Satan to do his will, that they don't live for the glory of God, they don't have the spirit of God, and they haven't been born again to walk in newness of life. So why would we try to compel them to be what they can't? You know, we have different expectations and mandates from God towards fellow believers than we do towards unbelievers. So we know, for instance, that believers have been born again to walk in newness of life, so we should expect that. They have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, so we should see a demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit. We know that they love the Lord by keeping his commandments. We know that they sin, but they keep confessing their sin. We know that Satan is no longer their master. We know they live for the glory of God. Thus, the hypocritical life of a professing believer is a disease that corrupts and spreads like leaven through dough in the church. Living in sin is to unsay with our lives what we profess to say with our mouths. Paul addressed this in Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He describes the Cretans, you know, the evil beasts and lazy gluttons, kind of a pirate-type community. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but with their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. It's kind of like what Jesus said in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord and then do not do what I say? See, there's a problem there. And I think all the commands in the Bible about our need to love one another and practice the one another's, which exclude ignoring sin in each other's lives. Unbelievers are an entirely different category. They can't help but sin. And they need the gospel. They are the mission field. They need Christ. 
Third, don't judge those outside the church. Look at verse 12. He says, for what have I do with judging outsiders? The Apostle Paul is referring to those who are outside the church, not Christians. And the implied answer to the question is clear. We have nothing to do with judging those who are outside the church. God judges those who are outside the church. In fact, the Bible says they're already judged. You know, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, what? Shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. It's like the sword of Damocles waiting to fall in his head. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and a godliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You remember how the apostle Paul addresses the Ephesian believers at the beginning of Ephesians 2. He says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in desire the flesh and mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest God's wrath abides on is against all unbelievers but when a sinner places their faith in Jesus Christ when they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins was resurrected on the third day then the judgment that they deserve because of their sins is taken upon Christ the Lamb of God Jesus taught in John chapter 5 verse 24 truly I say to you he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment but has passed out of death into life how can that be because Christ took our judgment he took our penalty he died our death on the cross as our substitute. Once a sinner is saved by grace, there is no condemnation for those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And so I just ask you, if you come to that place in your life where you realize that you are a sinner, that you realize that you have offended a holy God, that you realize you deserve judgment, that you realize that without some savior helping you, you will perish in the lake of fire forever. If you have not, turn to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to God right now. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't wait till you get your act together. Do it now. Today is the day of salvation. We have all lied. We've all lusted. We've all coveted. We've all stolen. We've all committed idolatry. We've never loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of every day. Or here's a good command. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How you doing? None of us do good. We all need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. He did not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. There is the way of escape. And if you place your faith in Christ, this is what happens. Christ takes all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your judgment upon himself as your substitute. And that he gives you, reckons to you, his perfect righteousness. And you get to go free because of what he did for you. So if you've never placed your faith in Christ, please do that. I call upon you to turn from your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will pardon you.
Jesus takes away our sin and guilt. If you do that, you will move from somebody who is outside the church to somebody who is the church. You, you will be the church in part. Look down at verse 13 where the Apostle Paul clarifies why Christians don't go around judging unbelievers. The Apostle Paul says, but those who are outside, God judges. You know, don't try to compel the children of Satan to live like the children of God. Don't expect the children of Satan who are held captive by his will to live like believers in hypocrisy. They can't. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. He contrasts those who are in the flesh, unbelievers, with those who are in the spirit. Listen to what he says here. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset in the flesh is death, but the mindset in the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset in the flesh, listen to this now. If you're an unbeliever, your mind, which is set in the flesh, is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He says it four different ways. That's why we don't judge those who are outside the church, because they can't help but sin, because they're not reconciled to God through faith in Christ yet. Sinners need to first be converted, regenerated, saved by grace, transformed into new creatures so that they can live for the glory of God. Until that happens, they are hostile to God. They don't subject themselves to the law of God. It's impossible for them to do so and they can't please God because they are not yet reconciled to God through faith. Let God judge those who are outside the church. Don't go around witch hunting with unbelievers. Fourth, Judge those within the church. Look at the middle of verse 12. Do you not judge those who are within the church? And the implied answer is, of course we do. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, we do? Because you are all thinking about Matthew 7, 1, which is a verse every unbeliever is born having memorized. <laughs> judge not, lest you be judged. We'll talk about that in a second. But look at the near context of our text in verse 3 where the Apostle Paul says, for I am, on my part, though absent from body, I'm present with spirit, I have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul says, I've already judged the man who was having an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And verse 5, he says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Which means the apostle Paul passed sentence on the man and had him removed from the church so he could live his immoral life with unbelievers. And maybe by being kicked out of the church, it might bring him to repentance so he might be saved in the day of visitation. But it's not guaranteed. Paul makes it very clear in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, that any person who lives and practices a life of unrepentant sin and immorality is not going to heaven, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says it twice. But what does Paul mean by judgment? You know, do not God judges those and we, are we not to judge? What is he talking about there? There's basically two kinds of judgment being addressed in our text. The one kind of judgment is to pass a sentence of eternal condemnation. You know, you're going to perish in hell and you'll be swimming in the lake of fire forever. The Lord's 
prerogative is to pass eternal judgment on people. Verse 13, those who are outside, God judges. Now, having said that, it is okay for us to tell people what the word of God says. For instance, you can go to somebody living in immorality and say, if you keep living in immorality, you will perish in the lake of fire, not because you are passing judgment, an eternal sentence of condemnation upon them, but because you're quoting the scripture that says God will. That's okay. It's okay to tell people what the word of God says, like the immoral shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Galatians 5, 19 and 21, Ephesians 5, 3 through 8, etc. Thus, it's not bad to tell people of coming judgment. You just can't determine whether or not that person will repent later on or not. You can say, flee from the wrath that is coming, because it is coming on all who do not repent. But there is another kind of judgment, and that is to discern between right and wrong. First Corinthians or First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty-one says, Examine everything carefully and hold fast or hold tight to that which is good. In other words, evaluate everything in your life by the word of God to see whether it is as good or bad. We are to be like the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, who understood the times and knew with knowledge to knew and knew what Israel was to do. That's what we are to be. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11, who were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They just didn't take the apostle Paul's word for it. And so we treasure God's word in our heart. We use it as a radar to examine everything in the church, among believers, and in the world. We don't judge those who are outside the church. We do judge those who are in the church. But you say, but what about that Matthew passage? Turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter seven. Let's just look at it because this is one of the verses that every unbeliever has etched on their mind from birth and they use it as a shield to deflect people who want to share the gospel with them and I want you to understand what it means in its context Jesus says judge not lest you be judged it's one of the few verses you know that everybody seems to know at least that part but let's look at the whole thing in its context. Verse one, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And if that's all Jesus said, then the Bible would contradict itself because Paul says in our text, are we not to judge those in the church? But the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Look at verse two. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. For by your standard of measure will be measured to you. Jesus is saying people will judge you in the same way you judge them, by your standard of measure. Look at verse three and four. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? Jesus asks a couple of rhetorical questions here. You know, what happens? You're, you're out and about and somebody goes, ow, ow, ow. And you go, what's wrong? I got some in my eye, an eyelash or a piece of dirt or something. Well, let me get a little piece of tissue and get the corner and try and fish it out for you. And you say, okay, but the problem is you've got this beam sticking out of your face. 
a log, a tree trunk. You're whacking him with it. You can't even get close to the guy because of the beam in your own eye. And notice how Jesus here is equating taking a speck out of your brother's eye with what? Judging. The speck in your brother's eye is some little sin in their life and you are offering to help them with their little sin, but the problem is you have a bigger sin in your life. The log represents your spiritual hypocrisy that you are sinning in a greater way than they are, and this means you are unfit to address the sin in their life, to judge them, to take the speck out of their eye. Look at verse 5. You hypocrites! See, that's the issue. First, take the log out of your own eye. How do you do that? You repent of your sins. You confess it to God, 1 John 1, 9, so he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Then Jesus goes on to say, and then after you repent and confess of your own sin, you will see clearly to take the speck, i.e. judge your brother. Take it out of his eye. Before you address someone else's sin, make sure you aren't committing that sin or another sin to a greater degree. Don't go judging people in hypocrisy in the church. First, get the log out of your own eye. Jesus isn't saying never judge your brother. He's saying don't judge your brother hypocritically. First, do some logging. Then, do some judging. Believers are each other's keeper. We are called to judge, discern, evaluate, to look out for each other's spiritual well-being. Do you not judge those within the church? Yes, but never hypocritically. And fifth, remove the professing Christian living in sin from the church. Look at the end of verse 13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves, which in the Greek means that. The wicked man is any so-called brother who is living in unrepentant sin. You have judged, you have discerned the person is in sin, you've gone to them in private, you've talked to them, they still don't repent. You go with somebody else, two, maybe two people, to kindly, gently, in the fruit of the Spirit, encourage them to repent, they don't do that. You kick it up to the leadership, the leadership investigates, and if they have to, if the man still or woman doesn't repent, then you tell it to the church. And if he still doesn't repent, you treat him as a Gentile, a tax collector, as one despised, as a pagan idolater, an apostate, who, though knowing the truth, has fragrantly rejected it and refused to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and their life. And this is taught in other texts as well. Romans 16, verse 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. First Thess or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, now we commend you, brother, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Or verse 15, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Or Titus 3, verses 10 to 11, reject the factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and is self-condemned. The fellowship of the saints, the corporate worship of believers is not for so-called brothers or sisters in Christ who are living in open rebellion against God. The church is not harmed but helped when you remove the wicked man from among yourself. 
so we've learned that every one of us needs to be our brothers and sisters keeper for the glory of God, for the purity of the church. So I ask you, will you leave here committed to not associating with any so-called brother living in sin? Will you associate with unbelievers not to participate in their sins, but to be a witness for Christ? Will you refrain from judging those outside the church? Will you practice judging those within the church, but not hypocritically? And will you support your elders when someone living in unrepentant sin must be removed from the church? These are the lessons the text before us teaches, and may we all faithfully receive them and apply them to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for its clarity. We're thankful for Providence Bible Church. We pray, Father, that you would bless this church. We pray that you would bless the leadership. Lord, help them to be faithful. Help them to be good examples. Help them to walk in holiness. Help them to show the congregation how they are to live their life. We pray for each person here that you would bless them, encourage them, use them for your glory. For those who don't know you, Lord, may they feel the conviction of their the spirit upon them for their guilt and sin. And Father, may they realize that Jesus is the only way of escape and may they strive to enter that narrow gate. May they pursue with the rest of the saints the holiness without which no one will see the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. Save them, Lord, transform them that your church might be the holy bride you intended to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.